You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Welcome to HeadX, hosted by Martin Betts. This podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the higher education experience. Today's guest on HeadX is a former dual Paralympian and commercial solicitor. Is someone that's left elite sports and practicing law for a career and now pursuing a career in higher education. Paul Harper has a strong vision for equality, which infuses his work at the University of Queensland, where he's an associate professor and on a four-year ARC Future Fellowship, supporting universities to become disability champions of change. His work has led him to being appointed to Jason Clare's University's Accord Ministerial Reference Group, and to his chairing of the University of Queensland Disability Inclusion Group. He's also been appointed as an academic fellow at the Harvard Law School Project and Disability. Paul, a warm welcome to HeadX, and we'll hear more from you straight after this message from our sponsor. Enjoying the HeadX podcast? You should check out The Thought Bubble, a podcast series where cross-disciplinary experts from all around the world share insights about emerging technologies and all the ways in which they can transform how we teach, learn, evaluate and experience higher education. Hear from Google, Meta, Holland IQ, KPMG, Duolingo and more. Find The Thought Bubble wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, Paul, welcome to HeadX. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's fantastic to be here and thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's, um, it's something that I've been looking to- forward to for some little while in the interactions and exposure that um, I've had of you and your work. And Paul, let's take it a little bit further back than when I first came in on 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 your journey. You you've developed your career through the state school system in Queensland and different universities in a na- in a city that we now share in Brisbane. I wonder if, um, for the benefit of the listeners, you can summarise what your roots have been the journey your education and working life has taken and what brings you to now be such a significant champion of equity and inclusion in our sector and um, in describing that journey how would you summarize how the the issue of equity and inclusion has progressed in our universities over the years that you've worked in the sector what, what what's your journey and what's your view of the the sector and how it's changed well thanks for that like like many people, my childhood really defined me. Well, at the age, age of 13, I started high school in a Bayside suburb in Brisbane. I did not have any disabilities. I had and have a great family. I was fifth generation Anglo-Saxon and I'm male. I love basketball, rugby, swimming. So very standard, nothing exciting. Then at the age of 14, I took a shortcut through some railway tracks and managed to get hit by an electric commuter train. I somehow survived that and a bunch of injuries, and I woke up blind. Now, I thought to myself, not having ISA, it's a bit of a pain. But then I found out just how disabling society is. Imagine going from a student who could access all their instructional materials at the same time, at the same, in the same way as everyone else, as someone who gains all their materials in a different format, a less accessible format, and weeks late. And that was just a start. I found the world was filled with challenges and I decided pretty young, I wanted to address those challenges for me and for others. What enabled me to go 
from someone who wanted to change things to believing I could change things was the ability to have contact with people with the same experiences I was having. I wanted to have contact with people who were blind. For me, I was really lucky because when I was hit by the train, we already had a family friend who was totally blind. So when people were trying to tell my family and I that I should go work in a sheltered workshop, he just told them to get stuffed and gave us a bunch of practical solutions, which really set us on the right path. Now, that idea of finding people like that really influenced me throughout my career. So Ron McCallum, who we all know was a professor, um, IR, industrial relations law professor, superstar, and um, his experiences was transformational in my life. His roadmap for success, you can see in my career. So you often hear people say, you can't be what you can't see. Well, for me, I seen Ron gave me the vision. He was a major factor in my decision to, to go to university and study law. It's also not surprising that Ron, who is a professor, a professor of industrial relations law, was pre-retired, that I ended up practicing industrial relations law. Ron, before he retired, was a legal academic. It's not surprising that I ended up as a legal academic. Now, I look around for role models still. So you could see Professor Robert Greenberg from the University of Auckland and Professor Linda Agnew from Griffith University. Both of these scholars are deans and happen to be blind. I'm also um, had a number of interesting conversations with New Zealand's first, first blind vice chancellor, Rod Carr, who's now the climate change commissioner. And of course, we all know Graham Innes and I've known Graham for years. He's, he's now the um, chancellor at CQU. So I've had a lot of role models, but that's taken a lot of work for me to find them. You see, finding leaders with disabilities in our sector, it's, it's difficult. Take, reflect for a moment. How many people do you know across Australia with your rank and that you work with? How many of them would you know? Say 50, maybe 100, depends if you're vice chancellor, obviously. Think about how many of those have a disability that you know about. It's a small figure. And if you have a disability, trying to find those people to, to, to able to use as role models is really challenging. But we are getting better. And I believe the university's called process is going to create transformational change. And I'm really positive about where it's heading. What a fantastic story, Paul. That's a brilliant personal journey with some lovely um, examples of others that have inspired you and inspired you to not only pursue a career of your own, but now become such a significant role model and leader of of these activities for others and and you're um you're showing and taking up those significant leadership roles in equity and inclusion including forming launching and as i understand it now leading it with others the um something called the university's enable group and for the benefit of of me and all of our listeners can you tell us a little bit more about what that group is, what it's trying to achieve, and where and maybe what it's currently up to in the sector. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so I might take it back 15 years. So for about 15 years, I've been co-designing, co-implementing, co-monitoring disability inclusion measures with universities. So advocacy takes many, many aspects. I'll focus most of my efforts around enhancing disability governance. So identify challenges, and, and create workable solution. So this, this workable solutions really requires a trust from universities and those who lead universities, as well as those in the committee. So far, so good. 
So when I think about workable solutions, it's those that meet regulatory requirements, but and align to university strategies and also help those in the communities. Ideally, you want to kick as many goals as possible. Now, but give an example of this. Uh, now, most people who people listening to this would agree that the employment rates of people with disabilities in our sector requires more work. So to help that process along, I applied for Australian Research Council Future Fellowship and secured it, as you mentioned in your introduction. And um, I'm helping universities to become disability champions of change. So part of that is researching on universities, helping the sector, as well as producing um, governance frameworks, which helps the university sector. I see a benefit in leaders with a disability in our sector, working with the leaders of our sector to co-create, co-design, co-implement and co-monitor solutions to disability inclusion. Accordingly, I reached out to a number of those who are leaders in our sector with a disability who are already either working with their leadership or working on the university governance with those in the universities to come together at the sector-wide level and with also the support of others in the sector to launch a, a university sector-wide disability steering group. We call this Universities Enable. Now, we launched this group on the 12th of October um, 2022, which is actually 29 years to the day I was hit by an electric train and lost my eyesight. The, the group itself it's, is modelled on the, the Universities Australia DVCA, DVC, PVC Indigenous group. We do not have current endorsement from the board or the plenary at UA at the moment, but UA is represented on this group. So we all have launched this group at a really opportune time. We formed at the time of change. We launched during the time of the university's accord process, and we fit this new agenda. We strongly demonstrate the potential in diversity. We live the hope in the accord process that people with disabilities and other diversity groups can succeed. Universities Enable itself is dedicated to supporting universities in developing their disability governance, fostering cultures of inclusion, and promoting equality across our sector. We believe that university governance should be inclusive and driven by those who deeply understand disability in our sector and all those, those who have lived experience. We believe that such governance will enhance how our sector delivers its mission to staff, students, and the wider community. That's a, that's a great story and great summary of the work you've been doing in Universities Enable, Paul. And um, you talked about the timeliness of that emerging at the time that a university's accords emerged with such a strong focus on equity and, and inclusion. And I, I, I guess that, that combination of your personal success and leadership activities with, with that impeccable timing, if I might describe it as such, saw you selected for the Accord Ministerial Reference Group. I wonder what, what your involvement in that involves and what can you share with us about the process undertaken, undertaken to date and how you've been able to contribute to it in a, in a diversity and equity and inclusion advocacy role? I believe the university's Accord reform agenda will achieve profoundly positive results. Whereas, whereas previous reviews have focused on one aspect of the education journey, the university's accord process forms part of a broader agenda. So we've got a review into early child, our early childhood education system led by Deborah Brennan and the team of the Productivity Commission, as well as the review of schools 
led by uh, Dr. Lisa O'Brien. And of course, we have the university's accord process itself. And the university's accord process focuses, of course, on universities and vet. Now, collectively, they map out the pathways, pathways and s- sets up an agenda to fill those gaps. So this reform agenda is going to open up opportunities wide, opportunity doors of opportunity wide. Now, the university's accord process has a strong focus on diversity. Now, a lot of their spiky ideas um, are very broad ranging. So you've got reforms to TEXA, a tertiary education commission, a higher education ombudsman for students, an equity commissioner, and that spiky idea um, about the creation about the indigenous the creation of the first oh, sorry the first nations higher education council the interim report also provides reforms to university governance um, the governing statutes which govern our universities as well as reforming representation on our, our council senates and trusts and also its reforms proposes reforms to academic boards and how university administrations operate in education research and their community engagement, and links all this, that broader broader package. So it's a really challenging time. Now, I think it's exciting, and to coin Eliza Hamilton, look around um, at how lucky we are to be alive right now. We are part of something which is going to be spoken about and used for decades. It's positive in that, that this university's accord process is so wide as when it comes to diversity and achieving significant changes in diversity is going to require changes at all levels. To to achieve significant change, it's going to require changes at the top and throughout. And governance is critical. Now, the importance of governance is is emphasised by it's one of the priority actions that has been actioned now. Staff, Staff governance. But it's also put on for other areas. Now, illustratively, in their submission to the interim report by the um, Australian Committee of Chairs of Academic Boards and Senates, they explain that the need for sound academic governance pervades much of that document. To help advance the governance in the reform um, in the university's accord on disability, after the release of the university's accord discussion paper, I help universities enable secure some funds from the department to perform primary and policy research and revert back with some proposals around disability governance. With my colleagues, Professor Katie Ellis from Curtin University and Dr. Lisa Stafford from the University of Tasmania, we had focus groups with with um, people with a disability who work in the chancellery, we have with academics with a disability, with professionals with a disability, and with students with a disability, as well as running a survey which had around 200 responses. And we also drew from our own personal experience, both myself, Katie and Lisa, all have lived experience of disability. So we argue that this is the time to introduce a framework which will endure beyond government changes and has the capacity to continue continue innovations and improvements so that the kindergarten, primary school and high school kids now can start, will be able to study in the future at a higher education sector, which regards disability as central and not as an afterthought. And unfortunately, sometimes something to be ignored. Now we are in a unique point in time where those who lead our country, who run our universities and the university's court process are enthused with big ideas, which can create 
a just, inclusive and sustainable sector. Now, we think strategy drives change and we think the university sector needs a disability strategy, which is co-created with people with disabilities, working importantly with the leadership of the sector and to guide the sector forward. To be effective, diversity governance needs to be included at all levels. Now, diversity cannot be the job of one person or one body or one regulator. To be effective, diversity governance will require significant change across the sector, including regulation, um, the governing bodies, and it's also going to need thought leadership. It needs to be included across all levels. That's a, that's a great summary of um, your involvement in the process to date and how it's seen from you and the Universities Enable Group. And um, I'm, I'm sure you've read the interim report and being involved in such close quarters have um, been following the debate with some interest. And you've presumably read some of the submissions that have been made about that interim report. What would your summary be of where we're currently up to? And what are you expecting to happen between now and the end of the year when a, when a final report will be prepared? The University's Accord and its reform agenda is already translating to improvements. We already see a bill before Parliament to abolish the 50% rule. Um, and on 25 September, the employment white paper is released, which sets out a um, it's pro- sets out a business case for a national skills passport. So the national skills passport initiative will form part of the government's efforts to promote lifelong learning, which is a key objective of the university's accord process. Now, illustratively, a skills passport could, could combine um, qualifications across vet and higher education to more effectively demonstrate people's skills to employers. So the university accord, accord process, that's going to inform it. Now, as for my work on the, on the university's accord directly, the last meeting of the university's accord ministerial reference group will occur in um, 2 November in Rockhampton. And I've got to say, I feel amazed that an average kid from the suburbs in Brisbane has the privilege of being part of the university's accord process. For me, it's really a dream come true, to be honest. I want to do my best to make sure I'm living the dream and I want to make sure others get the chance to dream big and like me realise their dreams. So I've done performed a lot of work on the universities and minister on the reference group. So I've read all the... I've read the reports and every submission made, as well as most of the commentary by media and politicians. So from all of this, what's jumping out to me, we are shifting the dial on diversity. This is a tipping point. In Australia, the universities are called process shifts diversity to core business. This new approach, it's it's more like a new paradigm, a more inclusive paradigm, a paradigm where universities are universally designed, a paradigm where universities are universally designed. This universally designed university designs in everyone as far as possible, whether you have a disability or not whether you are from the city or from the regions, whether you're from a rich family, a poor family, whether English is your second language or whether you're first in family. This is a bold agenda. And the Australian Universities Accord interim report provides us some ideas how to take this bold vision and turn it into into a governance framework which will achieve its objectives and importantly, is workable for all of us. Now, one idea is giving those with lived experience a voice in the governance. So you see an interim report talks about genuinely including communities. We see it with increasing the student's voice, increasing the indigenous voice, increasing the regional voice, 
And the interim report anticipates leadership from those groups and others when designing, implementing, and monitoring our measures. This, I believe, will lead to better outcomes and empowers those who have been silenced to become leaders and lead us all to a stronger and fairer sector. Um, I find I find diversity-led initiatives more effective and more efficient illustratively. It's often easier for those with lived experience to gain the commitment and trust of people in those communities. That makes the process more effective, faster, as well as cheap. So if we apply that approach to say disability, it's been common for consultants, professors, um, and other researchers who do not have disability to lead teams who have, do not have people with disabilities on it, being paid to understand higher education for people with a disability, staff or students. Now, under that paradigm, often um, people with a disability are only often only involved as unpaid participants. So I'll get a call as a professor or associate professor with a disability and ask for my expertise on disability. And they ask students. Now, this is all against going contrary to international norms, but importantly against Australian government policy. Under the leadership of um, Minister Bill Shorten, the NDIA, the agency which regulate um, is the board oversight um, over the National Disability Insurance Scheme has six out of 12 of that board have a, has a disability plus the chair. So it's a majority led board. So I would suggest that reviews of standards, um, interventions, um, should always have people with lived experience as leads and researchers and not just as participants who are often unpaid. It's um, very powerfully expressed, Paul, and I don't think hearing that from you expressed in that way, many people would and should and could argue with that. And look, that, that advocacy for appropriate and authentic thought leadership being so crucial has been so clear in the messages I've heard you, you share as we've... Um, got to know each other through this accord year and what one thing that HEDEX has advocated for is that beyond the reference in the interim report to research capability to inform the ongoing accord implementation process that we really need to build capacity for insights into innovative best practice from those with lived experiences in higher education both in in our sector but also from other parts of the world and other sectors and two questions emerge from that from me for you of what do you think of that idea first up and and um you know depending on what your answer to that is what would you offer as examples of best practices from global higher education and other sectors in in equity and inclusion that you believe we in australian higher education in a in an accord year can learn from well i think it's a great idea at the moment so many in the sector are looking up beyond the horizon but this focus on over-the-horizon thinking is going to have to slow down once the universities are called process settles um, settles down and it comes to an agenda. People get busy, get, get focused on doing, but we need people to keep looking over the horizon. And we, we seemingly have no limit on good ideas when we create the space for this to occur. Look at the universities accord interim report, for example. So there's five priorities in there, which are, I think, are really uh, fantastic. And the government's implementing them, then there's over 70 spiky ideas that we're looking at. And then within that, you see this, this the accord anticipates this constant search for new ideas. So we have examples in the interim report where we want to keep challenging the status quo, looking over the horizon. And for example, the interim report raises the idea of a, 
a single regional university, which of course was first explored in the Bradley Review. But the interim report, um, the universities are called interim report, it picks it up and calls for this review to consider the potential of establishing a new regional university. And they then draw, um, look overseas and draw from the University of California system. Now, I think that's a really good lead in the interim report to keep looking over the horizon. And, um, and I think we should use that the report as the interim report as a springboard and the court itself as a springboard to see how we can look overseas and look around. Um, if I want to go to the US, just as an example where we, we could learn, many universities in the US have chief diversity officers. These officers help lead diversity across the university from the C-suite. Now in Australia, beyond Deputy Vice-Chancellors and PVCs Indigenous, most of our um, equity, diversity, inclusion in is leadership in the chancery or centrally is more at the level of director level. So they don't hold a chancery rank. So whether the CDO model is good for Australia is um, may or may not be good, but we need to reflect on how that, how we need to reflect on our diversity governance and reflect what's happening overseas. Beyond just governance, we need to make big thinking ideas accessible to everyone. Now, podcasts such as TEDx play an important role. So um, I found a number of your podcasts really helpful. So 40, number 40, very helpful when that's by Professor David Lloyd, where he speaks of the first strategy jam across um, his uni. And I found that really helpful when I was trying to develop um, disability strategies and um, whether I was going to run a strategy jam. And you're not going to find it surprising, my surprise. You're not going to find it surprising that my favorite podcast is <laughs> the one by Debbie Terry, my very own vice chancellor. Now, the reason I found it really helpful um, was because Debbie spoke of how the University of Queensland strategy was developed, which occurred during COVID. And importantly for me, um, it, occur it occurred after um, occurred during the process, we were energized by the awarding of the Olympic and Paralympics to Brisbane. Now, I have the honor to serve with the Vice Chancellor on our Olympic and Paralympic Oversight Committee. So hearing your podcast enabled me to have a deeper understanding of what I'm doing here at the University of Queensland. And so it helps me serve my university and others who our, our university support better. What a fascinating bit of feedback, Paul. <laughs> I'm um... I'm really encouraged and delighted to hear you say that and and um, really pleased to hear that a means of engaging the chancellery and the leaders of our universities with um, their, their own desire to be transparent and to be accessible to more in their institutions and our sector is is served by such means. And look, um, you, you've told me about how HEDEX is, is able to help someone like you in your role as, the U, as, as a UQ advocate for inclusion but um you've got experience of being a funded arc future fellow and and now have the value of gaining global insights into best practice yourself as i understand it as a fulbright fellow what do you think of the idea of it's just occurred to me in 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 interacting with you of various universities associated with headaches perhaps like uq having some of its leading innovators and thinkers like you pursuing some of the ideas that you've been sharing on this episode today for continuous innovation and change alongside headaches as past of as part of the the sort of post-final report ongoing ongoing implementation and innovation within the accord. Is there is there value in us keeping these sorts of conversations going, do you think? Yes. And um to pick up the Olympic and Paralympic metaphor one bit further, I think it's a, it's gold. Now let me explain <laughs> why. <laughs> um I want to reflect first, 
um, what is higher education in Australia? Well, higher education, it's our largest export sector that does not involve digging stuff out of the ground. Higher education is the great equaliser in an unequal world. Universities are the machines which can drive us to a more inclusive and prosperous tomorrow. So higher education plays a critical role in our society. And I believe to achieve that, we need to involve everyone in our sector and thought leadership. Most of us, though, are spread out across the sector and lack opportunities to come together to explore what is possible. And I think what you propose would help because it would help higher education continue to be greatest assets in this country. I, I read your submission to the Universities of Court Interim Report with, with great interest. I agree, we need new a new independent, best practice, policy-oriented think tank. So there's other submissions which um, support this concept. Say Griffith University, um, they, they spoke of, um, in their submission, they spoke of um, a higher, a, they, call for, they call for a higher education academy to provide um, advice to the sector. So I think the idea of, have, of having the various universities associated with HEDEX, having some leading innovators pursuing ideas for continual improvement and innovation, along well with HEDEX, and as part of the post-review process, has real merit and one I'd personally be interested in pursuing. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that, Paul, and I may well take you up on that as the days unfold and as the um, priorities move forward. But look, you're in a great position to articulate what those priorities for equity and inclusion for our students and staff in the sector are right now. And what what, what would the time that's left from the interim report until we have a final report, do you think should be prioritised and added to of the many provisions that you've already described as being there for equity and inclusion for our students and staff? The priorities on equity, diversity, inclusion in the accord process are impressive, but I think there is still a gap. When you read the discussion paper and the interim report and consider all of the submissions, um, all the submissions, as well as the media and political political commentary, and bring them all the other scholarship outside that. One one issue to me jumps out that requires more attention. That is university governance on staff diversity. We see a lot of diversity um, governance for students, but the attention on staff, I think, is lacking. Now, one of the priority actions is is on ensuring university governance makes universities better employers. So that is employment. But And then the, the uh, Antrim report notes that that governance should especially target underpayment and security of employment for staff. Now, not to detract from those important issues, I believe we need to specifically need um, add in diversity, make our universities inclusive and fair employees for all our staff. And when I say all, I mean all. We need to consider just how many people live with a diversity in our university community? So let's say about 7% of our staff live with a disability. Then you factor in gender diversity. All of our staff with LGBTQI+, our older workers, our Indigenous workers, and then if you factor in, in factoring intersectionality, when you add up all those groups and all those people, you're probably going to get to the majority of our staff live with some diversity. Now, now we're not saying diversity is at the top. That's probably not but it's present in our, in our universities. Despite this fact, we often lack 
governance structures for diversity for staff. So we need to have structures um, to better manage governance. So let's think about disability. So with disability, we often lack the data to know how we're doing on staff with a disability. All universities collect data when their students ask for help and when those students self-identify. But for staff data, it's it's lacking. Where we do have data, it, it's concerning. We also, importantly, don't know what initiatives are working by um, what are working and what aren't working when universities um, are operating. Now, collecting all that data is would be really valuable, but I recognise that collecting data is expensive. I'm mindful that any new recommendation should also be accompanied to recommendations to eliminate or at least reduce current um, record, regulatory obligations. So we want a disciplined response. And I think a disciplined discipline response would be to build upon existing diversity governance structures that exist. We have diversity reporting for voluntary schemes um, for many um, many categories. Some universities don't. Um, we, we collect it in various different ways. So create that more efficient reporting and then share, share all that data and benchmark. But importantly, we need to include innovations so we can tell what's working, what isn't. And also, if you can include staff with a disability who are academics and enable research around that, then we kick another goal there by having publications that are um, on those topics, which are informed, and it will create a more inclusive sector so that the universities are informed by their scholarship on their own universities. That's um, that's a great set of aspirations being expressed for the way that you see the, the process moving forward. And I wonder if um, you might give us a further summary of some of the thinking that you've shared throughout this podcast then, Paul, by in closing um, for today. Can you tell us what you're most hopeful of as an outcome of the Accord process by the end of the year and its subsequent implementation and the years that follow? Um, and maybe in summary, what you believe it can deliver for genuine inclusion in our Australian higher education community. Well, I believe we are all participating in a process which will result in our sector being more able to effectively achieve our visions and our missions as set out in our governing statutes and also set out as our social causes in our strategic documents. There are a lot of spiky ideas in the universities are called process. The question is, will the process work out what is workable while keeping the vision that is enthusiast process to understand whether the challenges, that challenge will be meet, whether the visionary ideas can be embraced, whether they, whether those spiky ideas we push through parliament, whether they'll be resourced. I think we have to reflect on who is making those decisions, who's governing our sector, who regulates our sector, and those who lead our sector. Now, our political leaders, I believe, are, going, are committed. Um, now, I, I was shaped by my background, and I believe people always are. Now, um, Jason Clare, our federal education minister, he was the first in his family to go to university. Indeed, actually, he was the first to finish grade 10. Um, Jason's mum never really went to high school. She spent two years um, with rheumatic fever, and when she got better, she couldn't catch up. So, you know, he he wasn't, Jason was lucky, his mum wasn't. So they're powerful drivers. Then, of course, the PM, Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese's mum, spent much of her life 
with crippling arthritis, um, and he grew up in public housing. So they're powerful. Now, if you go to our, um, if you go to those who work and lead our universities, I believe um, many of those people are there because they want to change lives. I think most of us who work in universities want to see the benefit of higher education maximized. I think most of us want to see a higher education sector that is open and inclusive for everyone. So I think in the next 12 months, we are going to see changes that will make our sector stronger, fairer, more inclusive. And I think this is going to benefit everyone in Australia. So I'm both excited, enthused and energized and admit I'm an optimist. You certainly are an optimist, Paul, and it's absolutely infectious, I have to tell you. The authenticity of your message and your reflecting on your own lived experiences and your ability to see the virtue in lived experiences of other people is something that really um, really captures my imagination and energises and excites me too. You, you've been a fantastic guest for us on HeadX today, and I really applaud the work that you're doing in advocating with your with your colleagues and friends for this vital part of our agenda, and indeed to to share your recognition of others there that you've mentioned to to commend the sector itself for giving voice to and listening so attentively and and authentically to the the views you're expressing. I think it's a very healthy sign. I think it's a vital sign for the future of our sector, and I'm really pleased that you've been able to be a guest with us on the HeadX podcast today, Paul. Episodes. 89, I think this is going to be, is one that will always be known as the Paul Harper episode. (laughs) Thank you very much for the opportunity. Sometimes people comment that it's hard to find people with disabilities to involve in governance or in policies or driving or anything like that. I note that the universities are called discussion papers said there's 9% of our student population live with a disability out of that. So that means there's 144,000 students with a disability, which is like the size of three universities. And somewhere between six and 10% of our staff. So we're present, we're keen, and we're enthusiastic. Let's get it, let, let us get involved. Yeah, perhaps you're only um, difficult to find if people aren't looking for you, eh? <laughs> well, it is actually, it can be hard, but the way to find people with disabilities is go to the people with a disability who are visible and let them reach out because disclosing disability can attract you to um, for uh, unfortunate outcomes. I have a guide dog, so um, I'm pretty damn obvious. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you you asked me as we came into this podcast whether you would be being the first person with a disability as a guest on this podcast. And I I told you that I thought you were, but I didn't know because in many cases, disabilities aren't aren't as obvious as they are for someone with a guide dog. But um, I, I, I think having obvious guests with disability on the podcast in the future is something that I'm keen to see. And um, you might be in a good position to help me find them, Paul, and help me as a co-host in having the conversation with them, which helps us keep this issue of such great import to the future of our sector high on the headaches agenda, and I hope the sector's agenda in the in the weeks and months and years ahead. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I think is always important to bear in mind, just because you have a disability, or just because you're a woman, or just because you're Indigenous, just because you're first in family, just because you're an older work, um, older student, older worker, doesn't mean you want to be involved in advocating for that group. And so um, you need a lot of people with each diversity category to share the load and to help champion an inclusive sector, which represents our Australian community. I think they're very um, good points, well made from someone with a lived experience and a sensitivity to both 
advocating for, but also appropriately engaging people in these causes and in these issues for our sector. So thanks for sharing them with us. Trust you as a para, as a former Paralympian, Paul, to be making the connection of goals with the issues in the university's accord. So, okay. so Paul, did you ever get gold as a Paralympian in your sport endeavours? No, no, unfortunately, I did compete in the Sydney Paralympics and the Athens Paralympics, but all I ever made were finals. The only medal I ever got at, um, on the podium really was the silver medal in the world titles for the 400 metres sprint. Sounds pretty good to me. I, I can't help seeing some, you know, obviously huge difference between our journeys, but a lot of parallels between what I've been doing at HeadEx and what you've been doing at Universities Enable in that, um, well, I think we both got going in the pandemic and both of us had the luxury of Universities Australia Conference this year and the Universities Accord this year, giving giving clarity and focus on the purpose of what we were pursuing at um, a similar time. I know you launched Universities Enable, at exactly the same time I was launching my book coming out of the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Which is a fantastic book. And I love reading all the, the um, interviews at the back because the university's accord process is just so exciting and the capacity to, to see diversity come onto our agenda. And then not just on the agenda, but in the forefront of the agenda is for someone who champions inclusion. It's just an exciting time to be around. And I must say, in terms of timing, I think your July conference in Sydney cannot, you couldn't have paid for the better time. Everyone literally was reading the report as we were there talking about the report. It was the most engaged conference I think I've been at ever. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for saying that. And uh, Paul, that's probably all we've got time for today. But um, in the spirit of some of that conversation, I'd love to have you back on the HeadX podcast as a co-host with some guests that I hope you'll bring to us in the coming months.